It's good to be with you again today. Please take your scriptures and open to Matthew. We're going to be looking at chapter 12. A couple of verses in that chapter. We'll be looking specifically at verses 30, 31, and 32 this morning. We've all heard that saying, um, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. In the words of a British scholar, poppycock, right? That's crazy. Words hurt because words are powerful. Words are powerful. You can hurt with words, like when your boss says, you're fired. You can communicate security, like when a husband reaches over and gently touches his wife's shoulder and says, I love you. They can encourage, like a father looking his son in the eyes and saying, I'm proud of you. It can soothe Like a friend saying to you, you can count on me. They can heal. Like a child telling a parent, I'm so sorry. They can inspire. Like a coach telling you, I believe in you. They can put a pit in your stomach. Like a girlfriend saying, we have to talk. But all those pale in comparison to the powerfully scary words we are going to be looking at today. Some of the scariest words that Jesus probably ever spoke. And he spoke a lot of scary words. Some of the scariest words that we will ever hear. So look with me, if you will, at verses 30, 31, and 32 in chapter 12. And there Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. But. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Please pray with me. Lord God, I pray that you've been with me this week, helping me understand your scriptures rightly. And I pray, Lord, that as I preach them, that you will temper them perfectly into our hearts. That if I am being too harsh, that it will be forgotten. That if I am being too soft, you will sharpen them. Help these words to circumcise our hearts this morning. To be softer towards you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus, if I can re- 
calibrate us to the context is still in this back and forth with the Pharisees here in chapter 12. He has just performed the miracle on the Sabbath of healing the hand of, uh, of a, withered, a withered hand of a man. And the people are beginning to wonder if this is perhaps the Messiah. You see that in verse 22 when they ask, can this be the son of David? The people are starting to understand what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is saying is lining up. And this might be the guy. But the Pharisees, who, if you recall, if you could look back there in verse 14, have just decided on an action going forward to to in the sometime in the future plot to kill Jesus. They want to snuff this idea out. And so they ascribe the miracle that Jesus has just done, casting out this demon to Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And with a clear evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit before them, with the clear evidence of who Jesus is, they ascribe to Satan the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of God through Jesus. And that prompts Jesus to warn the Pharisees, first, that there is no neutral territory spiritually. That there is no neutral territory spiritually. In verse 30, you can look there. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. He wants the Pharisees to know, point blank, that there is no middle ground with God. There's no neutral spirituality. When the Korean War ended in 1953, there was no clear victor. There was really just an armistice, a declared ceasefire. And they divided the country into two parts along the, north, uh, along the 38th parallel. Thus, for the last 68 years, there has stood what has been called the DMZ, the demilitarized zone. And this is a, a zone 160 miles wide from the Sea of Japan to the Yellow Sea. And two and a half miles, uh, 160 miles long, and two and a half miles wide, a demilitarized zone. And that two and a half mile patch of land is neutral territory. It doesn't belong to either side. No one can lay claim to it, the north or the south. And what Jesus is saying here is that doesn't exist with God. There's no neutral territory with God. There's no DMZ. Now, most people, most people tend to think differently about this. Maybe you're saying this is pretty basic stuff, but most people you bump into do not believe this. They tend to think if, not, if I'm not against Jesus, I'm with him. Most people tend to think, if I'm not speaking against him, if I'm not speaking against, I'm okay with Jesus. Jesus is okay with me. They say, I may not gather, but I certainly am not scattering. 
So God must be okay with me. That is the neutral inclination that man has towards God. Just assume you're on Jesus' side. And here Jesus says the first scary word. No. That's not true. You either are with me or you're against me. You're either a gatherer or a scatterer. Charles Sheldon in his book, In His Steps, wrote this. Jesus is the great divider of life. One must either walk parallel with him or directly across his path. Parallel or perpendicular. That's it in the kingdom of God. You're either all in or all out. C.S. Lewis wrote about the second coming of Christ. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be a time when we discover which side we've really chosen, whether we realize it or not. Most people do not realize they're not on Jesus' side. Have you ever thought about that? Most people do not realize that they're not on Jesus' side. I mean, just, just think about this a second. In 2015, when a poll was taken, 75% of America claimed that they're Christians. 75%? Really? No way would be what was going on in America would be happening if 75% of people believed what Jesus said here and lived it. Yet millions think they are because they think that neutrality or non-commitment equals being with Jesus. Millions think that if, if they're not against Jesus, they're for him. Millions think that they're, they're, they're not scattering, thus they're gathering. Thus millions will hear on the day of judgment another set of scary words that Jesus says. Depart from me, I never knew you. There's no neutral territory with Jesus. And that's one of the great graces and purposes of the local church, isn't it? To make clear who's in and who's out. It's one of the purposes of, of the church. To show very visibly, very explicitly, I'm a gatherer. I'm with Jesus. I'm all in for Jesus. I'm committed to Jesus. Through membership and commitment in the local church, you show whose side you're on. I mean, that's why we commit to each other. It's one of the reasons we do it. So that the world will see there's people that are in and out. With Jesus, not with Jesus. There's no neutral territory. There's no DMZ. So Jesus is warning the Pharisees regarding what side they're on. But he also offer, offers a very 
hopeful and very merciful word to them in verse 31. And that is that forgiveness is God's natural posture. Forgiveness is is his natural posture. In verse 31, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. That's a pretty broad and big and powerful statement. Even facing the hatred and opposition of the Pharisees, he offers them an olive branch, doesn't he? That's what he's doing there. Because Jesus' natural posture is forgiveness. That's God's natural posture is forgiveness. Clinton Williams went to the courthouse in Juliet, Illinois, to support his cousin who was being sentenced that day. At the precise moment that Judge Daniel Rozak was reading the sentence, Clifton let out a loud yawn. Because of that ill-timed yawn, the judge cited Clifton for contempt of court and handed him a sentence of six months in jail. Ironically, his cousin, who was scheduled to be sentenced, only got probation, but Clinton left going to jail. Now, many people think of God like Judge Rozak, don't they? Any ill-timed yawn, he's got you. He's, he's leaning forward on his throne of judgment, just waiting for you to make a mistake. That's what most people's view of God's posture is. But that's not God's natural posture. It's not what... It's not, That's not what he's leaning forward, waiting to do. He's actually leaning forward, waiting to forgive, wanting to forgive. He's a forgiving God, and he's standing ready to do that. And even to those who are openly opposing him, like, like the Pharisees. Isn't that what we see here? The Pharisees are openly in in hostility against him. Basically calling him satanic. And yet he's actually being gracious and warning them. Letting them know, if you repent, I'm ready to forgive you. Even for calling me satanic. Look at verse 32. He says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, he's being even specific there, even speaking a word against me, the Son of Man, you will be forgiven. Even if you speak against Jesus, he's ready, he's poised, he's leaning forward on his throne of grace, ready to forgive you. Isn't that a good word for us as we just went through confession, brothers and sisters? Yeah, that's a great image to have in our minds that he is just ready and willing and excited to forgive you of your sins. Even if you speak against Jesus, he's poised to forgive. In the 1990s, Francis Collins, the head of the Human Genome Project, stood with President Bill Clinton at that time, and he announced, today we're learning the language which God created life. 
One of the most respected scientists in the field of genetic research, Collins, was a self-described obnoxious atheist in his academic days. To him, science had all the answers. Any questions about life in the universe could ultimately be reduced down to physics and chemistry to him at that time. After college, Collins attended medical school, and there he dealt with a broad spectrum of suffering and, and diseases and people. To his surprise, one of his patients one day described how her faith in Christ actually supported her through her terrible suffering. And that started Collins on a trajectory to find out about her faith. Finally led him to read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and he wrote this. Within the first three pages, I realized that my arguments against faith were those of a schoolboy. Then while hiking in the Cascade Mountains one day, he came upon a frozen waterfall. A couple hundred feet high and frozen in three sections, he said it all of a sudden reminded him of this three-in-oneness. At that moment, he writes, I felt resistance leave me. It was a great sense of relief. The next morning, I fell on my knees and accepted the truth that God is God, that Christ is, the son, is his son, and that I am giving my life to that belief. So today, instead of ridiculing and opposing God, He's one of his greatest apologists. Brothers and sisters, there's no sin so great that God's grace is not greater still. Nothing. Collins blasphemed God like the Pharisees. God forgave him. There's no sin beyond the arm of God. If you are like, were like Collins against God, and if you, like Dr. Collins, believe that Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life, desiring to obey God in everything that he did, and he completed that. And if you repent and believe that Jesus died for your sins, that he actually paid the penalty on the cross, that it's true that the wages of sin is death, but it's also equally true that Jesus died a substitutionary death for you, for your sins, paying that penalty, and that he rose from the dead three days later, you're forgiven. You're totally forgiven. Sins past, present, and future paid for, absolved, absorbed in the body of Christ on that tree. Brothers and sisters, any sin can be forgiven. What about backbiting and gossip? Forgiven. What about driving under the influence? Forgiven. What about cheating on that history final? Forgiven. What about loving money more than God? Forgiven. What about getting your teenage girlfriend pregnant? Forgiven. 
What about destroying someone else's character behind their back? Forgiven. What about pathological lying? Forgiven. What about having an abortion? Absorbed in the cross of Christ. What about cheating on your husband? Forgiven. What about experimenting with homosexuality? Forgiven. What about repeating the same sin over and over again? That has to be the unpardonable sin, right? Forgiven. What about premeditated murder? Sounds a lot like David, doesn't it? Killed a man, stole his wife, and lied about it. As a matter of fact, a a good case could be made that he broke eight of the Ten Commandments, of which we just heard several of this morning. Guess what? Forgiven. What about knowingly denying Christ? Knowingly denying Christ. Well, that sounds an awful lot like Peter, doesn't it? You know that he actively and knowingly denied Christ to that woman the third time and then the cock crowed. And in Luke, it says that at that moment, Jesus turned and looked right at Peter. But Peter was forgiven in one of the sweetest forgiveness narratives we have in Scripture. What about actively and knowingly working against God and his people? That has to be the unforgivable sin, right? Knowingly working against God and his people. Who's that sound like? That's Paul. You remember what he wrote 30 years after the fact? He said this saying is trustworthy and deserves all acceptance. That Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I am forgiven. God's forgiveness is immense, it's grand, it's all encompassing. He's poised to forgive, He leans forward, ready to forgive. God's forgiveness has its limit. God's forgiveness has its limit. Look at verse 31. Jesus goes on and says, But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or or the age to come. There seems to be a sin that you can do that is unpardonable. As 1 John 5.16 says, a sin that leads to death. There seems to be a line that God draws in the sand. And apparently, apparently, the Pharisees were dangerously close to that line 
And so Jesus is warning them. He's even being gracious right here in warning them. Be careful. You're close. I can hear your minds. Pastor, what is it? Pastor, tell me what it is. And by the way, don't don't take three pages to say it. Just say it really quickly and succinctly. Tell me so I don't do it, right? I want to answer first by telling you what it's not. It's not an ordinary sin. It's not an ordinary sin. That's the list we just went through, brothers and sisters. It's not an ordinary sin. Jesus forgives all of those. Also, it's not a repeated sin. It's not a sin that you keep doing. That finally Jesus will say, you pass the line in the sand. 70 times 7, well that's 70 times 7 plus 1. It's not that. Remember what Paul wrote to Timothy in the second chapter of the second book. Even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. It's not a momentary sin. It's not a momentary sin. And here's the comfort for all those who are afraid right now. It's not a momentary sin. It's not saying or doing one thing. In other words, here's the big exhale. It's not something you slip up and do. You will never slip up and commit the unpardonable sin. You will never run into my office and sit down in one of those chairs and say, Pastor, I think I committed the unpardonable sin. You'll never say that. In fact... If you're worried about committing the unforgivable sin, it's very, very safe to say you haven't committed it. If you're worried about it, you haven't committed it. Because if you look at the context of Jesus' words here, the unforgivable sin is the end of a long path. It's the end of a long path. Here is the unforgivable sin. I put it up on the board because I was going to read it five times so you could write it down, but here it is. A progressive, willful despise and rejection of the clear truth of the gospel that has cultivated a hardness of heart and mind to the extent that the desire to repent is gone and no more light will be given. A progressive and willful despise and rejection of the clear truth of the gospel that has cultivated a hardness of heart and mind to the extent that the desire to repent is gone and no more light will be given. That is the trajectory that the Pharisees were on. That is what prompts Jesus to give this warning. If you, if you go back in Matthew and you look at, at how the 
the Pharisees came into the picture and where they are now, that trajectory is that they came into the picture actually inquiring about Jesus, what he was doing. If you remember back in chapter 9, they ask him, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're, they're actually wondering. Help me understand. They seem to be teachable. But then by chapter 12, they take on a more accusatory tone when they say, your disciples are, are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. More accusatory. And then, as I just pointed out earlier in the sermon, in verse 14 in chapter 12, they have gotten to the point where they want to kill him. All the while, Jesus is clearly showing who he is, clearly teaching who he is, healing, casting out demons, raising people from the dead. All the while, the Holy Spirit is prompting them, giving them more light, pointing to Jesus Christ. For that's the, that's the Holy Spirit's job, if you will. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He points to Christ, says there he is. That's why Jesus makes the distinction between the Son of Man, will be, it'll be forgiven, blaspheme against him, but not against the Holy Spirit. And the Pharisees have refuted, encountered, denied, and opposed, resisted, and rejected, and that's the path they have been on for a while. And they get to the point where they accuse Jesus of satanic work, and Jesus says, Careful. You're close. You're close to the point of no return. You're close to a hardness of heart where you cannot repent. You're close to where Esau got. Remember what it says in Hebrews 12 about Esau, that he wanted to inherit his blessing, but he was rejected. Even though he sought with bless- the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. His heart had gotten to a point where he couldn't even repent. William Hendrickson writes, When a man has become, and has become hardened so that he has made up his mind not to pay attention to the promptings of the Spirit, not even to listen to the Spirit's pleading and warning voice, he has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. See, the unforgivable sin is the end of a road. I believe that is what Hebrews 10 is talking about when it says... For if we go on sinning deliberately after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer a sacrifice that remains for sin. And when that happens, God actually turns out the light. It's hard to hear. It's harder to say. R.C. Sproul writes, even though God is extremely merciful, overwhelmingly forgiving, there is a limit to his mercy. And that's what we begin to see with the Pharisees. If you just glance down in verse 38 of chapter 12, they demand for a sign. And what does Jesus say to them? No sign will be given. Begins to turn out the lights. 
That's how he dealt with Israel in Isaiah 5. There, God likens Israel to a vineyard that he loved and he planted in fertile soil. He, he did the hard work of taking out the stones, it says, and he used choice vines to plant them. And it says there, but it yielded wild grapes. So listen to what God says to them. And now I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I'll break down its walls and it will be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that no rain shall fall on it. There's a limit to God's forgiveness. What Jonah says is true. God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from sending calamity. But the hard truth is there comes a time when God's mercy is withdrawn. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And that is true. But there actually comes a time in a person's life they've been given light and they reject and harden that they can't repent. God's patience comes to an end. If you harden your heart against the Holy Spirit's pleading and warning long enough, there comes a point where what I am saying here today puts no fear in you. You shrug it off. There comes a point where hell holds no dread for you. If you harden your heart against the Holy Spirit's pleadings and warnings long enough, there comes a time when God withholds the rain. His patience comes to an end. No more light will be given. During World War II, an American naval force in the North Atlantic was engaged in a heavy battle with enemy ships and submarines on a moonless and starless night. So they sent out six planes and took off from the carrier to search out for the enemy. But while they were in the air, a total blackout on the carrier was ordered to protect it from attack. Without lights on the carrier deck, the six planes could not possibly land. As their fuel got low, they made requests for the lights to be turned on long enough for them to come in. But that would have put several thousand men as well as all the other planes and equipment in jeopardy, so no lights were turned on. Eventually, the planes ran out of fuel and crashed into the frozen water where the pilots perished into eternity. It's terrifying to hear that there comes a time when God turns out the lights, when no further opportunity for salvation is there.
If you leave here unstirred by that, I fear for you. If you are here today or listening on the live stream and there is no fear in you, I fear for you. However, if this terrifies you, the Spirit is pleading with you right now. This is the warning. This is the pleading. Christ is extending you an olive branch right now. So I say in the words of Paul, In the time of my favor I heard you. In the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you now is the time of God's favor. Now is the time of salvation. Reach out and take the olive branch that Christ is extending you. Let's pray. Lord God, I repeat my prayer earlier. That you've been with me this week. That I've exegeted the text well. And if I have not, soften my words but if I have use them Lord to not only circumcise our hearts but also to bring people into this hope and peace and love that is found in faith in Jesus Christ and it's in his name we pray